Well, forgetting important things can be embarrassing. Like the South Australian farmer last year who forgot that he moved his sheep from one paddock to another paddock. When he went outside and looked in his paddock, he thought his sheep were missing, so he called the police and recorded them stolen. It was a bit embarrassing a few days later when he found them in a different paddock. Forgetting things can be embarrassing. But forgetting important things can also be dangerous, can't they? Like the Tasmanian pilot three years ago who forgot to put down his landing gear when he landed on King Island. He landed, there was no wheels. Bottom of the plane hit the runway. Thankfully, he was safe. Wouldn't it be great if you could remember everything that you needed to remember? Yesterday afternoon, I just forgot to play hockey. I love hockey. I look forward to every week. This morning, I woke up and I thought, I missed something yesterday. Hockey. Completely forgot. Wouldn't it be good if you could remember things like wedding anniversaries, (laughs) birthdays, the the questions on your L-plate exam or P-plate exam, where you left your car keys when you're in a rush? Uh Ah, someone forgot them this morning. When it comes to our relationship with God, remembering what he has done for us is a matter of life and death. If you are a Christian, remembering where you've come from, remembering what your life was like before you knew Jesus and remembering what he did for you on the cross, that changes everything, everything about your life. How are you going at remembering that? Is it ever so present in your mind and your heart that it shapes everything that you do and it shapes who you are? Well, in the part of Exodus that we're looking at this morning, it is all about remembering. Remembering God's rescue, remembering God's power and remembering what we were before we were saved. Now, you might remember last week we began in the book of Exodus And Israel cried out in desperation to God because they were in slavery. And God heard their cry and he promised, I will rescue you. Today, we're going to see that rescue. But make no doubt about it, when this rescue happens, God will make sure this rescue is one to be remembered. And that's what today's passage is all about. From chapter 7 all the way through to chapter 17, it is about God's rescue. And it it breaks up into three sections. The first part is the first nine plagues, and it is all about a memorable display of God's power, how powerful God is, Exodus 7 to 10. Then there's the last plague, the tenth plague, which is different to the first nine, and it is all about the rescue and how to remember that rescue. And then tragically, the last three chapters are all about Israel failing to remember what God has done for them. So firstly, a memorable display of God's power. In Exodus 7, Exodus 8, Exodus 9, Exodus 10, there's this series of plagues. We just had the first one read for us. Now, plague in the Bible means an act of judgment by God on Pharaoh for his refusal to listen to God. And the first plague we just had in the Bible reading, God turns the Nile River to blood. The first plague, I think, just seems to be a warning, though, doesn't it? No one seems to be hurt. 
Some fish die. The Nile River stinks of dead fish. They have to dig for water, but uh, it doesn't really hurt anybody. Pharaoh isn't too fussed about it. He thinks it's a clever party trick. In fact, his magicians can do the same thing. I don't know what that means. The river's already turned to blood. Whether they can turn a cup of water red, I don't know. But they copy, and Pharaoh is not fussed. So God sends a second plague, this time frogs. Let's have a look at the second plague, chapter 8, from verse 1. Seven days passed after the Lord struck the Nile. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, This is what the Lord says, Let my people go, so that they may worship me. If you refuse to let them go, I will plague your whole country with frogs. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the streams and canals of pond and ponds and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So in the same style as the first plague, after a warning, after Pharaoh's refusal to obey God, the plagues arrive, the plague arrives. But again, the magicians copy. I don't know how they make frogs, but they do. Um, The magicians did the same thing by their secret arts. They also made frogs come upon the land of Egypt. Nice trick to be able to do. A bit dumb if you ask me, though. The magicians um, say to Pharaoh, look, we can make more frogs. That's exactly what they need, isn't it? No. (laughs) So when Pharaoh goes to get rid of the frogs, he doesn't turn to his magicians. He turns to God. Verse 8. Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron. He said, pray to the Lord to take the frogs away from me and my people and I will let your people go to offer sacrifices to the Lord. Over the plagues, there's this sort of gradual, slow realisation uh, that God is big. After Already after plague number two, Pharaoh seems to know that God is more powerful than his musicians, m- magicians, but he doesn't want to give in, does he? He changes his mind when the frogs disappear. Verse 15, he hardens his heart. So plague one, blood, the magicians copy it. Plague two, frogs, the magicians copy it. The third plague, gnats, there's a difference. See if you can spot the difference as I read it. Exodus 8, verse 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the ground and throughout the land of Egypt, the dust will become gnats. They did this. And when Aaron stretched out his hand with the staff and struck the dust of the ground, gnats came upon men and animals. All the dust throughout the land of Egypt became gnats. But when the magicians tried to produce gnats by their secret arts, they could not. And the gnats were on men and animals. The magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hard and he would not listen, just as the Lord had said. The difference is pretty obvious, isn't it? By the third plague, Pharaoh's magicians are completely outdone. They're forced to admit that this is not tricks. This is the hand of God. But not Pharaoh. That's the first three plagues, but there's nine plagues. They're in three cycles of three. Each cycle begins with with Moses getting up early in the morning. So there's three cycles of three plagues, and the pattern continues for the nine. In the second set of three plagues, the middle three, God sends flies, then he sends a disease on the livestock, and then he sends boils. 
And what is emphasised in the second set of three plagues is not that the magicians can or can't copy, but that now God makes a distinction between the Egyptians and his people. Now the plagues don't affect everyone, just the Egyptians. So chapter 8, verse 22, with the flies. On that day I will deal differently with the land of Goshen where my people live. No swarms of flies will be there so that you will know that I, the Lord, am in this land. Chapter 9, verse 6, with the livestock. The next day the Lord did it. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one animal belonging to the Israelites died. And then in chapter 9, verse 11, the boils, the sixth plague, the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils that were on them and all the Egyptians. See, so God is showing his power now in a way that is very clear. This is not some natural disaster. This is not some magic trick. This is the hand of God. But Pharaoh still doesn't get it. Uh, anyone been to watch a boxing match? Greg has. Libby has. I have. Only once. It was down at the Dubbo RSL Club a few years ago now, and I went because a friend of mine, David, was fighting in it. Um, a bit worried for him. Anyway, this was his first fight, so he trained like anything, his first boxing match that was. And there was this young guy up from Sydney to fight him. David came out. He came out strong. He was all over the other guy. Even I, who don't know much about boxing, could see that. A few minutes into the fight, I reckon only one or two minutes, they called the fight off. They declared it a no contest was the word, a mismatch, because David was so good, the other guy was way out of his league. It wasn't worth letting the fight go on. In fact, it would have been dangerous to let the fight go on. The other guy might have ended up being badly hurt. This fight here between God and Pharaoh is a complete mismatch. It's time for Pharaoh to call things off and go home before he gets hurt. But he doesn't. He won't. And for the last three plagues, everyone else, even the, his advisors around him, start to see who God is, even the magicians, even his own officials, but not Pharaoh. And so the last three set of plagues, we've had some about the magicians copying, we've had some about the distinction. The last three plagues are about God making an absolute mockery of Pharaoh so that he is really the only one left. The first one is hail. And the hail is devastating. Chapter 9, verse 14. This time I will send the full force of my plagues against you and against your officials and your people so that you may know there is no one like me in all the earth. And now perhaps because these plagues are now so much more dangerous, God actually gives warnings so that people, even the Egyptians, if they want to, can escape these judgments. So in verse 19, God commands people to bring their livestock in out of the fields and make sure the people are in out of the fields. And this time, even Pharaoh's own officials start to obey God. Verse 20 of chapter 9. Those officials of Pharaoh who feared the word of the Lord hurried to bring their slaves and their livestock inside. And then after a devastating hailstorm, straight away another plague, locusts. And again, after the locusts, even Pharaoh's own officials now get it. They now start begging 
Pharaoh to listen to God. Look at chapter 10, verse 7. Pharaoh's officials said to him, How long will this man, they're talking about Moses, be a snare to us? Let the people go so that they may worship the Lord their God. Do you not yet realize that Egypt is ruined? See, you're reading through this. We can see it. The Egyptians can see it. Pharaoh's own officials can see it. You don't mess with God. But Pharaoh doesn't see it or he doesn't want to see it. And the ninth plague comes. And by the ninth plague, Pharaoh has had enough. He, he tells Moses, get lost. Don't come back. I don't want any more of this. Chapter 10, verse 28. Pharaoh said to Moses, get out of my sight. Make sure you do not appear before me again. The day you see my face, you will die. Wrong response. You do not order God around. You, didn't, you do not ignore God like that. And so there's one more plague to come. It's called the Passover. It's horrible. I read it and sometimes I think, how could God do this? And yet back in chapter 2, when the Egyptians were killing the Israelite babies, I was thinking, how can God let that happen? See, sometimes we want justice, but sometimes we're not comfortable with justice. Maybe because we don't understand how wrong sin is and how it needs to be punished. But God's justice is right and fair. God won't let evil go on forever. There comes a time when he says, enough is enough. And so this last plague is God's judgment. Okay? When God's rescuing people here, he's not rescuing his people from the Egyptians. He's rescuing them from his own judgment on the evil of this nation. And it's described in just four verses. Two verses to describe the plague and two verses to describe Pharaoh's response. Exodus 12:29. Exodus 12:29. At midnight the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night and there was loud wailing in Egypt for there was not a house without someone dead. And Pharaoh's response during the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Up! Leave my people, you and the Israelites, go! Go worship the Lord as you've requested. Take your flocks and herds as you have said and go. And also, bless me. So in just two verses, God judges Pharaoh. He kills the firstborn son of every family in Egypt. And finally, the Israelites are free. 
I'm not sure if it's the firstborn son of every family in Egypt because when the Israelites are actually rescued, we see that there's actually some Egyptians who decide to become Israelites and go with them. That's wonderful. Whenever God judges, he rescues. Even though God's judgment is described in just those four short verses, though, this section about the Passover, it actually takes three chapters, chapter 11 and chapter 12 and chapter 13. That's because God wants people to remember. God wants his people to remember that when his destroying angel came and killed those firstborn children, his people who trusted him were passed over. And so all of chapter 11, the first half of chapter 12, the first half of chapter 3 are all about how Israel are to remember this night. So on the actual night of the rescue, before it happens, the way it worked, you might be familiar with it, the Israelites, each family needs to slaughter a lamb. And they take some of the blood from the lamb and they put the blood on the front doorposts of their houses on the top and on the sides. And then that night they shelter inside from God's judgment. And when God's angel comes, he passes over the houses that have the blood on the door frames. That's why it's called the Passover. God's judgment passes over his people. Now, God could have done it anyway, but he does it this way so his people would remember. Because every year after this event, they're meant to celebrate it like we do for Christmas or Easter or birthdays. They are to celebrate the Passover. So each year they would kill a lamb and retell the story of their rescue. They needed to remember. So chapter 12, verse 17, celebrate this day as a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. 13.3, commemorate this day, the day you came out of Egypt. 13.14, in the days to come when your son asks you, what does this mean? Say to him, with a mighty hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. This is something to be remembered. God is powerful. You've just seen it. You don't want to forget that. And God rescues his people. You don't want to forget that. The tragedy is, though, the Israelites don't even make it to the first Passover before they forget. God has done the most incredible rescue in the Old Testament, and yet at the first sign of trouble, they panic. Pharaoh, surprise, surprise, as we read on, changes his mind. He's just lost all his slaves. He gets his army together and he takes off after Israel. Let me read you the Israelites' response when they see Pharaoh coming. And tell me, is this a response of people who know God and trust him? Or is this the response of people who have already forgotten what he's just done? 14 verse 10. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up. And there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us into the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? 
It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. God's people have forgotten already. Read on. God parts the Red Sea. The Israelites pass through on dry land. The waters cave in. It completely destroys Pharaoh's entire army. And yet again, at the first sign of trouble, Israel complain again. Exodus 15.22 When Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, where he's just shown his power again, and they went into the desert of Shur, for three days they travelled in the desert without finding water. That must have been hard. When they came to Marah, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. That's why the place is called Marah. So the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What are we to drink? It gets worse, though. And as I read, think, is this the response of people who know and trust God? Or is this the response of people who have forgotten what he's just done? Chapter 16, verse 2. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat round pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. They're looking back at Egypt saying, We sat round pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. Is that what life was like in Egypt? No, they were being beaten up. Their sons were being murdered. They were crying out to God to be rescued. Have they completely forgotten? This is pathetic. This is what happens when you forget who God is. You complain. You grumble. You think the grass is greener on the other side. Don't you just feel like saying to these Israelites... Get over it. Haven't you seen what God has saved you from? Look at what God has done. Why can't you trust him? Why are you grumbling? How many signs and wonders do you need? And yet how different are we? There's only one rescue in the Bible, bigger than the Exodus. It is the rescue that Jesus achieved on the cross. It's a rescue that should fill us with confidence that God is powerful. Not only did he defeat Satan, he raised Jesus from the dead. It's a rescue that should fill us with humility to see that God would save people like us. And if after you've been rescued, you grumble and you complain, that's a sign that you've not remembered the gospel. Do you see that? If you are a Christian and you're discontent or you feel like grumbling or complaining, there's actually something wrong. You shouldn't be like that. You should be joyful. Do you grumble and complain because other people don't seem to do as much as you do? Or do you grumble and complain because you notice when other people need help but why can't they notice you? Do you grumble and complain about your job? Do 
you grumble and complain about your husband or your wife or your kids or your parents? Do you grumble and complain about your church family? Maybe we need to say to ourselves, and I include myself in this, what we feel like saying to the Israelites when they grumbled. Get over it. Look at what God has done. Have you forgotten what you've been saved from? If you're a complainer, there's something wrong. If you're a grumbler and you know if you are, even if you don't express it with your mouth, it's in your heart, then maybe you need to remember afresh the gospel. Just breathe it in. Your God is powerful. There's nothing that you need that he hasn't given you. Through Jesus, he has completely defeated your enemy. There's nothing that you need to worry about or be afraid of. Your God is a rescuing God. Through Jesus, he's given you new life, a fresh start. Your sin is forgiven. And remembering that daily, remembering that constantly, remembering what Jesus did for you when he died on the cross, it changes everything.